every episode of this podcast is about true things that have happened at some point or another on this planet. Each episode is different in the next, and they are each centered around stories that are odd, outlandish, or of the occult. This podcast will include foul language. This podcast may also include themes of graphic content such as murder, rape, or gore. Listener's discretion is advised. So, uh, hey, quick note, we, um, totally recorded the last episode that we released back in, what was it, November, and here it is February, so I just wanted to let you guys know that that was a episode that we recorded months ago, released it the other day, because life happened, and we kind of had to put a pause on the podcast. And now we're back, again, but like totally back back this time. And this episode, we're going to talk about everyone's favorite subject, feral children. Let's go! That's right, everyone needs a feral child. But, just before we get started, I would just like to say something about the previous episode. As I edited it, I came to the conclusion that it was the fucking butcher all along, wasn't it? Like, there's a butcher just hanging around on a corner, like middle of the night, like 3am, near a basket with an arm in it. And the killer was proposed to be big and strong, have knowledge of anatomy, and their own workshop or laboratory. Sounds like a butcher to me. There are also chicken feed bags, and he was known, among other things, as the Mad Butcher. So, yeah. If you want to know what on earth I'm talking about, go take a listen. Also, it has come to our attention that our Patreon was not easy to find. So if any of you sexy listeners out there would like to donate and help us on our journey to mediocrity please head over to patreon.com forward slash seven circles pod. That's the number seven circles and pod. Now back to the episode. Or you can just go to our website and find all of our links to all of our things there. This is a very valid point. And our website is www.sevencirclespod.com. The Jungle Book. A tale of an orphaned boy who is abandoned in the jungle and, instead of being eaten alive, ends up being raised by various beasties. As you all may know, Disney adapted the book and turned it into an animated feature. Who wrote the book, Autumn? R.A. Salvatore. <laughs> you, you don't know who wrote Jungle Book? Lewis Carroll. Rudyard Kipling. Rudyard Kipling. Yes, where is he from, Autumn? Tunisia. Or just England. (laughs) But the story of the real boy did not have a happy ending. Let us tell you about Dinah Sanichar. I did not fucking Google his last name. Did you say Sanichar? Sanichar. Like, it's a a sanitized chair. Um, In case, you know, you have the prolapse. Uh, It's Dina Sanichar. That's what I said. The year was 1867. The setting, Bulandishar District, India. One night... <laughs> did I say that right? Sure. <laughs> I apologize to all of our India listeners for my uh, stupid American face. At least as an American, you do actually realize there's only really one true kind of Indian. Yes. So you're, you're winning in that sense compared to most Americans. I know where India is. Well done. And it's not anywhere near us, so... Anyways, 
One night, a band of hunters made their way through the jungle when they stumbled upon a clearing. Beyond it lay the entrance of a cave that, they believed, was being guarded by a lone wolf. One wolf stands alone in a land infested with hunters. The hunters prepped to ambush their unsuspecting prey, but they were stopped in their tracks once they realized this animal wasn't an animal at all. It was a boy, no older than six. He neither approached the men nor answered their questions. Not wanting to leave the boy behind in the unforgiving outskirts of the jungle, the hunters brought him into Sikandra Mission Orphanage in the city of Agra. Since he did not have a name, the missionaries gave him one. They called him Dinah Sanichair. After oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like we had a whole conversation and then you just go ahead and say it exactly the same way you said it first time. Dinah Sanikar. Dina Sanichar or Sanikar. Dina, I don't Dina know. But I would suspect you pronounce a CH, but Dina. They named Dina S. They named him Dina S. After the Hindi word for Saturday. Oh, that's what Saturday means in Hindi. Anyways, that's the day he arrived, was on Saturday. So during his stay at the Sikandra Mission Orphanage, Senekar was given a second name. Wolf Boy. Wolf Boy? Wolf Boy. Um, I think you'll find there's an L in wolf. 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 It's it's not woof, Autumn. That's a noise that a wolf may make. You hate a you wolf hate, you hate may it when woof. I say wolf. Yes. You hate, he hates it. That's or why no, I say I, it. I I actually really really like it. The missionaries thought it suited him because they believed he was raised by wild animals and had never experienced human contact in his life. According to their accounts, Senekar's behavior resembled that of an animal more than it did a human's. He walked around on all fours and had difficulty standing on his own two feet. He only ate raw meat and gnawed on bones to sharpen his teeth. Communicating with the real-life Mowgli was difficult for two reasons. First, he didn't speak any form of language. Whenever he wanted to express himself, he would growl or howl, just like a wolf does. Second, he was not able to learn sign language. People who don't speak the same language can usually get close to understanding one another simply by pointing at various objects with their fingers. But because wolves do not point, or have any fingers for that matter, this universal gesture was probably meaningless to him. It's a shame he wasn't raised by pointers, I suppose. <laughs> Though Sanichar eventually learned to understand the missionaries, he never learned to speak their language himself. Perhaps because the sounds of human speech were simply too alien to him, the longer Sanichar stayed at the orphanage, the more he began behaving like a human. According to the missionaries, he learned how to stand upright and began dressing himself. Some say he even picked up the most human trait of all, smoking cigarettes. I mean, I, I'm i just reading the script here, dude. Is, is that really the most human of all traits, Autumn? You don't see very many dolphins smoking cigarettes, do you? <sighs> I mean... I don't know, have you ever stuck a fucking cigarette in a dolphin's blowhole and see what happens? <laughs> no, but I wonder if anybody has. Yeah, we should Google this afterwards. <laughs> um, but I guess if you actually think about it, like pretty much any other animal will flee from fire and smoke. Yeah. Yeah. But we just, we, we we just breathe it on it in. it on down. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Interestingly enough, 
Sanikar was not the only wolf child living at the Sikandra Mission Orphanage at the time. If Superintendent Lewis is to be believed, he was joined by two other boys and one girl who were also said to have been raised by wolves. In fact, stories of children raised by wolves have popped up all across India. In most cases, the missionaries caring for the children were the only sources, so whether they were feral remains debatable. Some believe the missionaries may have invented them for media attention. Others hypothesize the children may not have been raised by animals at all and that they actually had an intellectual and or physical disability. In that case, the stories may have resulted from people jumping to conclusions about their behavior. So did these children at the Sikandra Mission Orphanage exist? Maybe. Were they truly feral? We don't know because there are no actual records. They might have all just had various mental disorders. And as harsh as it sounds, in 1867, autism was not a diagnosis, so maybe these kids were just severely autistic. What if the orphanages were just running their own tests on these kids? How do you mean? Well, what if the orphanages were like, cool shit, we've got all these kids anyway, let's do some experiments, see what goes down. Um, they, if there were, if they did, there weren't any records of it, so... I mean, I don't imagine the Nazis would have left any records if they hadn't got caught. That's a good point. Anyway, so autism cannot be cured, but it can be treated. Or you could just not get any of the vaccines that didn't exist for another hundred years or so. Boo, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did I? <laughs> That's the first time I didn't sound quite sarcastic enough, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, okay, don't listen to that. That was a joke. Unless... Absolutely get vaccinated, you fucking person. <laughs> Unless you're, like, trying to appeal to our, like, InfoWars peoples. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I would literally rather never make another fucking cent out of this, which so far has probably only been about ten fucking dollars anyway, but (laughs) I would literally rather, I'd probably rather circumcise myself than have have an InfoWars listening fucking audience. They can... Well, I say that, you know what, fuck it. You know, you, you, you cunts can listen if you want. Just make sure you fucking go sign up on the Patreon. Anywho, with the right kind of therapy, humans with severe cases of autism can lead good and healthy lives. But in 1867, if you spot an orphan child in the wild and they are nonverbal and lack the basic brain power to be able to survive on their own in civilization, one might just think, Oi, this child do be feral. Mmm, doobies. Doobies? You said this child doobie feral. Oh, doobie. <laughs> oh, that joke could have been better if you hadn't used such a ludicrous accent. <laughs> I was a pirate. <laughs> Arr, what I'm trying to say is that science was pretty feral itself back then, so mistakes were something that happened. Arr, a lot. An Australian pirate? <laughs> yeah. What the <laughs> Fuck, man. (laughs) With that said, have we found any of these feral children lately? Before I answer that question, let's ask this. What exactly happens when you abandon a child to fend for itself? A lot of factors play into how this situation could turn out for them. How old was the child when abandoned? If the kid was like seven or eight when they were abandoned, then they have more of a shot at figuring out how to survive. But what about a toddler or an infant? Does a child need to be abandoned completely to become feral? 
What if the child is locked in solitary confinement for their whole life, not knowing any social interaction except that of their captor who only gives them food and changes out their shit bucket, or fingers them mercilessly? What is wrong with you? The word feral itself simply means wild or undomesticated. If you see a batch of newborn kittens hiding out in a barn and you go to pet one, they all hiss and spit at you. This means that they are feral cats and they don't have any idea what life as a domesticated cat would be like. But if you somehow manage to take one of the kittens in without getting your eye holes scratched out, with time and human connection they start to become somewhat domesticated. A lot of feral cats can become a bit tame, but they will always have that need to be outside in the world, hunting and stalking and catting. Where am I going with this? I didn't write it, and I truly fucking wish I knew, man. Okay, so part of being human is being brought up by humans. Philosophically speaking, I suppose. So, if you are not brought up by humans, does that still make you a human? Physically, yes. Behaviorally, probably not. Can you be ripped out of the only life you know? One that to us would be ultimately considered a depraved sort of life? Would it though? And then can you be thrust into one of civilization and ever fully adapt to being a full-on human? Probably. Just probably around a gump-grade human, but a human nonetheless. A fucking gump-grade? What the fuck? What the fuck is, what the fuck is a gump-grade human, Daniel? Well... A person who is of uh, gumpy, gump-esque qualities. We've covered this in other episodes. I don't know why it's confusing you. So let's talk about some stories of actual documented feral children, shall we? Yes, let's. Oksana Malaya was born in 1983 in Ukraine. Her parents were severe alcoholics and they lived on a little piece of land that had like three shacks and some lean-tos for shelter. Reports called this a farm, but if you watch the footage, you can definitely tell it's not a farm. Anyways, when Oksana was three, her mom fucked off and left her in the care of her father. And he did not acknowledge her existence. Literally either forgot that he had a daughter or was just too drunk to care. Well, one of the shacks on the property was a dog kennel, and Oksana just crawled in there one day looking for warmth. Inside the kennel was not only warmth but food and water too. So she just stayed there, with the doggos. And dad would come and refill their food and water every day, and that's how she fucking survived for the next five years. But she had no human interaction. Her dad just let her become a dog. No, really. Over the course of five years, anything that she might have learned as a toddler about being a human faded from her mind, and she became dog. She would run around on all fours, bark, lick things... You know, dog behavior. And it wasn't like, oh cute, look at little Oxy being cute, pretending to be a dog. No, she fully became dog. So are you telling me that she genuinely did not need toilet paper anymore? No, she probably just... (laughs) She probably just rubbed it on the ground, you know, just... You know how the dogs just rub their butts on the floor? (laughs) Oh, I thought you were suggesting she became like overly limber, and was just getting down there. Ew. That's what doggos do. When she was eventually discovered by child services, they found she couldn't speak. But she could lick her own butthole. She was taken out of her kennel and placed into a foster home for mentally disabled children. 
She went through many years of specialized therapy and education to address her behavioral, social, and educational issues. Eventually, she learned to subdue her dog brain and learned to speak and pick up social cues. Today, she works at a dairy farm and even has a boyfriend. She said that she wants to be a normal person and hates it when people call her a dog girl. So what do you think her favorite position is, Autumn? Reverse cowgirl. Surprising. (laughs) So yeah, Oksana really exists and she's an odd case. I can't believe nobody discovered her existence for that long. Five fucking years living as a dog. That early childhood development is so important, and when it's taken away like that, it can really fuck you up for life. That was so insightful. (laughs) Fuck off. And we could definitely go into early childhood development more here, but if you have a brain, you know why it's so crucial to life. So I won't bore you with the details, Daniel. Let's just talk more about feral children, shall we? Yes. Let's go to France. It's something you'll never hear me say. Victor of Aveyron was a French feral child who was found at the age of around nine. Not only is he considered the most famous feral child, but his case is also the most documented. Upon his discovery, he was captured multiple times, running away from civilization again each time. Eventually, his case was taken up by a young physician, Jean-Marc Gaspard Itard, also known as Sparditard to his friends who worked with the boy for five years and gave him his name, Victor. Itard was interested in determining what Victor could learn. He devised procedures to teach the boy words and recorded his progress. Based on his work with Victor, Itard broke new ground in the education of the developmentally Itarded. Sorry, delayed. Victor was prepubescent when he was captured in 1800, but experienced puberty within a year or two. It is not known when or how he came to live in the woods near saint sanen sur through what... <laughs> I'm just going to say stuff like you, it's easier. saint sanen sur <laughs> Sorry. saint sanen sur There you go. Though he was first reportedly seen around 1794. In 1797, he was spotted by three hunters. He ran from them, but they were able to catch him when he tried to climb a tree. They brought him to a nearby town where he was cared for by a widow. However, he soon escaped and returned to the woods. He was periodically spotted in 1798 and 1799. He was captured many times during those years, but he always escaped back to the woods. In January of the year 1800, he emerged from the forests on his own. His age was unknown, but citizens of the village estimated his age to be about 12. His lack of speech as well as his food preferences and the numerous scars on his body, suggested to some that he had been in the wild for most of his life. So I just had a thought. Um, It's interesting that he just kept going back to the woods the whole time as a child. Like, he really loved it there. Like, people tried to be like, hey man, this is is how you could live. And he was just like, no, I like like the fucking forest, dude. I don't want to be a kid. I don't want to learn shit. I don't want to be in school. Fuck you. I'm going to go live in the woods. But... As soon as he started going through puberty, he was like, eh, because he like kind of, he got captured. It's not strange at all, Autumn. He got boners. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's where I was going with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, even feral children have got to get them, (laughs) Sam. It was clear that Victor could hear, 
but he was taken to the National Institute of the Deaf in Paris for the purpose of being studied by the renowned Roque Ambrose Curcurion Sicard. Roque Ambrose Curcurion Sicard. Yes. Yes. Sicard and other members of the Society of Observers of Man believed that by studying as well as educating the boy, they would gain the proof they needed for their recently popularized empiricist theory of knowledge. Wow. So it sounds like they were totally exploiting Victor. Neat. Do you think it sounds like they were kind of maybe running some tests on him, like you said with the orphans at that one place, the wolf kids? I reckon. Yeah. Many members of the society were debating what exactly distinguished human from animal. One of the most significant factors was the ability to learn language. By studying the boy, they would also be able to explain the relationship between humans and society. It was said that even though he had been exposed to society and education, he had made little progress at the institution under Sakar. After Sakar became frustrated with the lack of progress made by the boy, he was left to roam the institution by himself until Dr. Etard. Did you just call him Dr. Etard? No, Dr. Etard. That's what I said, Dr. Etard. So, as I was trying to say, Victor was left to roam the institution by himself until Dr. Etard decided to take the boy into his home to keep reports and monitor his development. He effectively adopted Victor into his home and published reports on his progress. Itard believes two things separated humans from animals, empathy and language. He wanted to civilize Victor with the objective of teaching him to speak and communicate human emotion. Victor showed significant early progress in understanding language and reading simple words, but failed to progress beyond a rudimentary level. Throughout the years Etard spent working with Victor, he made some gradual progress. Victor understood the meanings of actions which Etard regarded as a kind of primitive form of communication. However, Etard could not get Victor to speak. He wondered why Victor would choose to remain silent when he had already proved that he was not, in fact, deaf. Victor also did not understand the tones of voice. Etard proclaimed, Victor was the mental and physiological equivalent of someone born deaf and dumb. There would be little point in trying to teach him to speak the normal means of repeating sounds if he did not really hear them. Victor ended up dying of pneumonia in Paris in 1828. The end! <laughs> Thanks for listening! <laughs> so they think that Victor was abandoned when he was about three or four years old. When do signs of autism start to appear? When a child is about two or three years of age. I think he was autistic and his parents did not know what to do about it because autism wasn't a thing back then. So you have a baby and they seem to be growing up normal and stuff, right? And then they get bigger and they are starting to learn to walk and talk and pick up social cues. They can read your face and they giggle and they are saying mama and dada. Everything is fine. And then one day you wake up and it's not. They no longer giggle. They can still walk, but their walk is just not the same anymore. They no longer try to talk. And it seems like they no longer even understand what the word no means. And then they start having random outbursts. Sometimes they bang their head on a wall repeatedly for no reason. In the late 1800s, this kind of behavior was probably pretty terrifying to an uneducated parent. Or even an educated one. Shit, it's terrifying nowadays. 
but that's exactly how autism presents itself. So maybe Victor was just autistic and they just didn't know what to do. Ah, science. Well, Autumn, it's funny you say that. Ah, science. Um, because you just said that's exactly how autism presents itself. And I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm no doctor, Autumn. But do you think a baby is born not autistic and then at around the age of two or three, then just magically all of a sudden they're autistic? Surely it's there the whole time. It's just that there are no non-discernible behaviours in even a healthy baby that's that young to determine if they're normal or abnormal. I mean, if your baby doesn't start saying mama and dada, are you going to think, oh shit, there's something wrong with my kid? It's certainly back then. Or are you just going to be like, all right, it'll happen one day. <laughs> I mean, my point is, and I don't know the answer, but my, I, and I don't think it's a guess. I, I feel like I'm fairly accurate in saying if you have autism from a young age, it's because you're born with it. But you can only really tell once a baby starts doing things that a baby should be doing. And then they just stop doing it. Boom. No. No. Yeah, that's how it works. No, the baby wasn't doing anything until it started doing something that wasn't right. It wasn't just a perfectly normal baby who was healthy and didn't have autism until the age of two or three. I never said So I never said that they weren't born with it. I just said that that's the age when it starts to present itself, like all the symptoms and the signs. Yeah, but I'm saying it only presents itself discernibly to observers because that's the age at which they would start doing normal child things. Before that, they weren't. They were just a fucking baby lying there, eating and shitting. They develop normally, and then one day they stop developing normally, quote-unquote. Okay, so just to reconfirm then here, an autistic baby lying there, giggling, smiling, being perfectly normal, saying mama and dada, and then one day he doesn't anymore. Yes, that's how it works. Okay, well, I don't know the answer for sure, but you sound pretty certain, so I believe you, wife. All right, we have digressed. Let's go to California. Now, that's something you will hear me say. Yeah, let's go. Jeannie Wiley, which is an excellent name for a feral child. Do you remember Wiley Kit in Thundercats? Yeah. Anyway, I fucking crushed on her so hard when I was a young child. Um... Jeannie Wiley was born in Arcadia, California in 1957. She was the fourth child of a former flight mechanic who fought in World War II. After the war, her father continued on as a pilot, and when he was 35, he met and fell in love with her mother, who was just 15 years old, which outside of the US has since become rather frowned upon. Yeah, Jeannie's dad was pretty fucked up. He grew up in orphanages all his life after his father was killed by a lightning strike. And his mum abandoned him to go run a brothel. Sex workers. Hookers. After she left him, he grew an immediate hatred towards women and was very outspoken about it throughout his career in the military. As soon as Jeannie's parents were married, her dad forbade her mum from ever leaving the house and would often beat her. She was there as a fuck doll and his slave to feed him and wash his clothes and keep the house. I mean, agent beatings aside, that sounds pretty great, doesn't it? Her mum had suffered a head injury as a child, resulting in partial blindness in one eye, which is why she struggled to avoid a fist coming at her face from that side. Once the beating started and never stopped, 
Her eyesight got worse and she ended up having severe cataracts and a detached retina in one eye. Her blindness left her even more dependent on him, and since she was still a child when she married him, she knew nothing else but to obey. And dodge fists like one of those wibbly-wobbly punching bags that always comes back at you. Jesus Christ. You're fucking terrible. Keep going. <laughs> it's still going in my brain. Wibble-wobble. <laughs> Wibble-wobble. Jeannie's father hated kids and did not want anything to do with them. But he also did not understand how sex and reproduction even worked. Around five years into their marriage, Jeannie became pregnant again. Although he beat her throughout the pregnancy and near the end attempted to strangle her to death, she gave birth to an apparently healthy daughter. When the infant was just ten weeks old, however, he locked her in the garage because she would not stop crying. Which, while globally frowned upon these days, is fairly understandable. As a result, the child died of pneumonia. Their second child, a son, died when he was only two days old from choking on his own mucus. Three days later, they had another son. He did not die. Jeannie was born when he was about five years old. Ah, shit. Ah, so all these kids were born before Jeannie. Ah, I, I might have missed that part. Okay, so she was the youngest. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. She was a healthy baby girl. A medical appointment at three months, however, showed that she was gaining weight normally, but found a congenital hip dislocation. Which is a pretty common thing. But she had a medical appointment at three months in America? I mean, her parents weren't treating her that badly at this point, huh? It must have been government mandated so they could get their food stamps. Wow. So the congenital hip dislocation required her to wear a highly restrictive Freca splint from the age of 4 to 11 months. This caused her to be late to walk, which researchers believed led to her father to start speculating that she was mentally sparta-tarted. <laughs> As a result, he made a concerted effort not to talk to or pay attention to her, and strongly discouraged her mother and brother from doing so as well. At age 11 months, Jeannie was still in overall good health and had no noted mental abnormalities, but had fallen to the 11th percentile for weight. The people who later studied her believed this was a sign that she was starting to suffer from some degree of malnutrition. When she was 14 months old, she came down with a fever and her parents took her to a pediatrician who had not previously seen her. Because this is what parents do when they are abusing their kids so they don't get caught. You know? Cunning. Yeah. The pediatrician said that although her illness prevented a definitive diagnosis, there was a possibility that she was mentally retarded and that the brain dysfunction connectoris might be present, further amplifying her father's conclusion that she was severely retarded. And we're not using the word retarded. That's the word that they used when they, like, were trying to diagnose her, man. It's historically okay to say... If you ever go back in time in a uh, in a time machine, you can definitely call retards retards. Not like we can call the retards now. We have to call the retards something different now. And if you find the time machine, come here and and come get me, and I will come with you and go on all the adventures. Yes. So connectoris is. Connectoris is a type of brain damage that can result from high levels of bilirubin in a baby's blood. <laughs> bilirubin. It can cause. <laughs> It can cause athetoid cerebral palsy and hearing loss. 
Pernicterus also causes problems with vision and teeth and sometimes can cause intellectual disabilities. Oh, God. This explains everything, Autumn. Do I have a connectorist <laughs> and a Billy Rubbin? What the fuck is a Billy Rubbin? No, I don't know. Carry on. Oh, Billy Rubbin is a red-orange compound that occurs in the normal catabolic pathway. You know, I did this to myself. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> Billy Rubbin is a red-orange compound that occurs in the normal catabolic pathway that breaks down heme invertebrates. There you go. This catabolism is a necessary process in the body's clearance of waste products that arise from the destruction of aged or abnormal red blood cells. Ah, science. So it kind of makes people stupid. I feel like there's a lot of Billy Rubbin floating around these parts. I like this though. I'm going to start calling stupid folks Billy's or Rubin's. Billy Rubin! Anyway, back to Jeannie. Jeannie Rubin? Six months later, when Jeannie was 20 months old, her paternal grandmother was killed in a hit-and-run traffic accident. Wait, when was this? What year was this? Like was in like... the 60s. Oh, I don't know. For some reason, I, I just had in my mind uh, an old lady like standing there in the street for like 20 seconds going, No! As a horse and carriage trots towards her. But I think it was a little bit later than that, huh? Yeah, they had cars. Cars. Her death affected Jeannie's father far beyond normal levels of grief. And because his son had been walking with her, he held him responsible, further heightening his anger. When the person who ran her over received only a probationary sentence for both manslaughter and drunk driving, Jeannie's father became delusional with rage. Scientists believed these events made him feel society had failed him and convinced him that he would need to protect his family from the outside world, but in doing so, he lacked the self-awareness to recognize the destruction his actions caused. Because he believed Jeannie was severely retarded, he thought she needed him to protect her even further, and therefore decided to hide her existence as much as possible. He immediately quit his job and moved his family into his mother's two-bedroom house, where he demanded her car and her bedroom be completely left untouched as shrines to her, and further isolated his family. So here's the thing. His mom abandoned him when he was a kid to go run a brothel. But when he became an adult and started a family, she found him and came back into his life. And then he became obsessed with her, and he loathed the relationship that she was building with his son, her grandson. Yeah, that, that's how that works, yeah. What do you mean? Yeah, a mother's son's son. Is, is her grandson, yeah. That's how oh, that that's works. how that works. Okay, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> so he had missed out on a childhood with her. Why should his son be able to have one? And then boom. One day, while his mom and son are on a walk, she gets taken out, but he survives. It's a lot. People are weird. Brains are weird. He was already fucked up in the head, so when something like this happens, it can push people over the edge. And that's what happens next. Upon moving into his dead mother's house, Jeannie's father increasingly confined her to the second bedroom in the back of the house while the rest of the family slept in the living room. During the daytime, for approximately 13 hours, he tied her to a child's toilet in a makeshift harness which he forced her mother to make. It was designed to function as a straitjacket and while in it she wore nothing but a diaper and could only move her extremities. At night, he usually tied her into a sleeping bag and placed her in a crib with a metal screen cover. 
keeping her arms and legs immobilised, and researchers believe that he sometimes left her on the child's toilet overnight. If Jeannie vocalised or made any other noise, her father would beat her with a large plank that he kept in her room. To keep her quiet, he bared his teeth and growled like a dog at her, and he grew his fingernails out to scratch her. If he suspected her of doing something he did not like, he made these noises outside the door and beat her if he believed she had continued to do it, instilling in her an intense and persistent fear of cats and dogs. No one definitively discerned the exact reason for his dog-like behaviour, although at least one scientist speculated he may have viewed himself as a guard dog and was acting out the role. As a result, she learned to make as little sound as possible and to otherwise give no outward expressions. She developed a tendency to masturbate in socially inappropriate contexts, leading doctors to consider the possibility that her father had sexually abused her or forced her brother to do so, although they never uncovered definitive evidence. Jeannie's father fed her as little as possible and refused to give her solid food, feeding her only baby food, cereal, an occasional soft-boiled egg and liquids. He, or her brother, spooned food into her mouth as quickly as possible and if she choked or could not swallow fast enough, the person feeding her rubbed her face in the food. These were normally the only times he allowed her mother to be with her, although she was not allowed to feed Jeannie herself. She claimed her husband always fed Jeannie three times a day, but also said that she sometimes risked a beating by making noise when hungry, leading researchers to believe he often refused to feed her. Well, this is a nice tale, isn't it? Fuck. Yeah, my bad. I think this could have used a trigger warning. Trigger warning! So, Jeannie's father had an extremely low tolerance for noise, to the point of refusing to have a working television or radio in the house. He almost never allowed her mother or brother to talk, and viciously beat them if they did so without permission, particularly forbidding them to speak to or around Jeannie. Any conversation between them was therefore very quiet and out of her earshot, preventing her from hearing any meaningful amount of language. Jeannie's father kept her room extremely dark, and the only available stimuli were the crib, the child's toilet, curtains on each of the windows, three pieces of furniture, and two plastic raincoats hanging on the closet door. I used to love staring at my curtains when I was a kid, and I turned out all right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, jeez. On rare occasions, he allowed her to play with plastic food containers, old spools of thread. Oh, boy. My spool of thread. (laughs) (laughs) Also, TV guide issues with many of the illustrations cut out and the raincoats. The room had two almost entirely blacked out windows, one which he left slightly open. Although the house was well away from the street and other houses, she could see the side of a neighboring one and a few inches of sky and occasionally heard environmental sounds or a neighboring child practicing the piano. Oh man, does she turn into feral Mozart? That said, if she's feral, she'd probably be more of a Beethoven. (laughs) Anyway. Jeannie's mother was passive by nature and was almost completely blind throughout this time. Her husband continued to beat her and threatened to kill her if she attempted to contact her parents, close friends who lived nearby, or the police. He also prevented his son from seeking help and beat him with increasing frequency and severity. As he got older, his father forced him to carry out more abuse on Jeannie. 
He tried several times to run away. Jeannie's father was convinced that she would die by age 12 and promised that if she survived past that age, he would allow her mother to seek outside assistance for her. But he reneged when Jeannie turned 12 and her mother took no action for another year and a half. In October 1970, when Jeannie was approximately 13 years and 6 months old, her parents had a violent argument in which her mother threatened to walk out if she could not call her own parents. Her husband eventually relented, and later that day she left with Jeannie when he was out of the house to go to her parents' house in Monterey Park. Jeannie's brother, by then 18, had already run away from home and was living with his friends. Around three weeks later, on November 4th, their mother decided to apply for disability benefits for the blind in nearby Temple City, California, and brought Jeannie with her. But due to her near blindness, she accidentally entered the General Social Services office next door. Which is actually pretty amazing because Jeannie might have never been discovered had her mom not been so damn blind. Blind bitch. Well... The social worker who greeted them instantly sensed something was wrong when she saw Jeannie and was shocked to learn her true age, having estimated from her appearance and demeanour that she was around six or seven and possibly autistic. And after she and her supervisor questioned Jeannie's mother and confirmed Jeannie's age, they immediately contacted the police. Her parents were arrested and she became a ward of the court, and due to her physical condition and near-total unsocialised state, a court order was immediately issued for her to be taken to the children's hospital in Los Angeles. Hospital? Yeah, I get that. But I don't think her mother was truly to blame in any of this, given what the father seemed to be doing to the both of them, do you? And indeed, charges against her mother were dropped due to her blindness, mental illness, and the abuse she received. Good. Not too bad for the time. News of Jeannie reached major media outlets on November 17th, 1970 receiving a great deal of local and national attention, and I would probably suggest international, because again, I remember her face. Yeah. Um, not from the 70s, because I wasn't born, but for some reason I, I know of her. And, and the one photograph authorities released of her significantly fueled public interest in her. So yeah, I wasn't overly familiar with the story of Jeannie, uh, or the earlier discussed Oxana, but when I looked them up myself uh, as part of this episode, I was immediately familiar with their faces. So, yeah, that, that's weird. I must have come across them at some point. Yeah, I definitely remember seeing the video of the Oksana girl jumping around like a puppy dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was so cute, though. Like a what? Little oxy. Like a what? Little oxy jumping around like a puppy dog. Like a little puppy dog. But, yeah, she was much more recent as well. So, anywho... Although Jeannie's father refused to speak to the police or the media, large crowds subsequently went to try to see him, which he reportedly found extremely difficult to handle. Three days later, on November 20th, the morning before a scheduled court appearance on child abuse charges, he committed suicide by gunshot. Shame. Police found two suicide notes, one intended for his son, which in part said, Be a good boy, I love you, and one that was directed at the police, contained the declaration, the world will never understand. Okay, so since like this guy was clearly abusive, um, willingly or due to mental illness, but abusive nonetheless, I think it's a little bit weird that we've chosen solely that particular excerpt from the note for his son, don't you? Be a good boy, I love you. Like, did he though? That's the only part of the note that they released. Oh, it is? 
Wow, so interesting. So was media at the time trying to make out like the father wasn't an evil bastard? I don't know. Good chat. (laughs) So Jeannie was 13 when she was finally taken to a hospital. She was extremely pale and grossly malnourished, standing 4 foot 6 inch tall, weighing only 59 pounds. She had two nearly full sets of teeth in her mouth and a distended abdomen. Does that mean her baby teeth just stayed in her mouth and her adult teeth grew in behind them? Holy shit. That's a marker of the devil, Autumn. <laughs> I like how you have in, in the brackets there what kind of accent you're going to do. That's yes, cute. Goodness. That's cute. That's cute. <laughs> the restraining harness her father used had caused a thick callus and heavy black bruising on her butt, which took several weeks to heal. A series of x-rays found that she had moderate coxa valga in both hips. Coxa valga is a severe deformity that makes your hip bones sit at a weird angle. And she also had an undersized rib cage, and her bone age was that of an 11-year-old. Despite early tests confirming she had normal vision in both eyes, she could not focus them on anything more than 10 feet away, corresponding to the dimensions of the room her father kept her in. That's interesting. Can we talk about that more? Yes. I was hoping you'd have more insight. (laughs) I was hoping you would. I just think it's interesting that she was raised in a room, and then when she came out of the room, she could not see past 10 feet, which is the dimensions of that room. I don't know. It's it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it makes complete sense. You know, normally children would grow up, and their eyes would be able to see things at any distance, and hers could not. So, yeah, it makes complete sense, and it it is interesting. Yes, it is, Um, but no more interesting than the fact that you stated Ah, science. Science. So, Jeannie's gross motor skills were extremely weak. She could neither stand up straight nor fully straighten any of her limbs, and she had very little endurance. Her movements were very hesitant and unsteady, and she had a characteristic bunny walk in which she held her hands in front of her like claws while ambulating. Really? Ambulating? Yes. Ambulating which suggested extreme difficulty with sensory processing. She could not chew and was mostly incapable of swallowing solid or even soft food. When eating, she held anything she could not swallow in her mouth until her saliva broke it down. Black magic! Or just enzymes, I suppose. And if this took too long, she spat it out and mashed it with her fingers. She literally has two fucking sets of teeth, dude. She had to mash it with her fingers. Because she didn't know how to chew because she was fed a liquid diet all her life. So the whole moving the jaw up and down to mash things with her face hole was unknown to her. Which is actually also kind of interesting. Like that other thing you said was interesting. Yeah. Like, did she have two sets of teeth because the normal part of a child's development to to gain the new teeth and the old ones to, to disappear comes as part of chewing? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I kind of wish I had never chewed now. Imagine having two sets of teeth, man. It's like a fucking, I don't know, shark or something. Anywho. She was also completely incontinent and did not respond to extreme temperatures. Evil. She wasn't evil, dude. I don't know. Sounds kind of witchy. Two sets of teeth. 
like could not register temperature or was just okay with any temperature and went around pissing herself. Sounds like a witch to me, Autumn. Burn her. At first, she would not allow anyone to touch her, quickly shying away from any physical contact, and while she sat on her mother's lap when requested, she remained very tense and got up as quickly as possible. Hospital staff wrote that her mother seemed entirely oblivious to her emotions and actions. I mean, she was literally fucking blind, man. That makes sense. So, Jeannie's behaviour was typically highly antisocial and proved extremely difficult for others to control. Regardless of where she was, she constantly salivated and spat and continually sniffed and blew her nose on anything that happened to be nearby. She had no sense of personal property, frequently pointing to or taking something she wanted from someone else, or situational awareness. Masturbation! Yes, Daniel. Doctors wrote that she acted on impulse, irrespective of the setting, especially noting that she frequently engaged in open masturbation and would sometimes attempt to involve older men in it. Yikes on bikes. Have you ever ridden a bike on a dike, Gordon? Have you ever thrown a tyke at a trike? I mean, thrown it. A- <laughs> <laughs> no, but I have ridden a bike on a dike. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's a cool story, maybe for another episode, but yeah, over in Holland, and uh, flooding and stuff. Yeah. Anywho, one of Jeannie's doctors, Jean Butler, took Jeannie into her home and eventually there was a custody battle between the doctor and Jeannie's mum. Neither one was awarded custody in the end and Jeannie was moved to a foster home, which is absolutely always for the best and let's be honest, probably meant she didn't need to masturbate as much anymore. But happily, not so in this case. She actually ended up living in that home for four years and there she thrived. She had two loving parents and three foster siblings. Jeannie's mum was allowed supervised visits during this time. When Jeannie turned 18, she was allowed to go live with her mother. Everyone thought she had progressed enough and was now an adult so she could handle it. But a few months later, her mum couldn't handle it, so she sent her to another placement home. And much more true to form, sadly... In this home, she did suffer more physical abuse and emotional abuse and started to regress to her formal feral state to the point of becoming non-verbal and incontinent again. Jeannie's social worker was finally able to remove her from this placement, but she had sustained several months of abuse before this could happen. The 1970s were wild, man. Um, yeah? How lucky we are to live in a modern and evolved world devoid of child abuse. It doesn't get any better than this. It's getting better. So she recovered in a hospital for a few weeks before being placed into another random home. And this was her life. Home after home after home. Sometimes they were nice, sometimes they were not nice at all. Merciless fingering. As of 2016, Jeannie was in a ward in California and subsequently living in an undisclosed location in Los Angeles. Currently, her whereabouts are unknown, and if she is still alive, she would be 65 this year. Alright, time for another case. Let's go to Germania. Germany? Germany! Deutschland! In 1725, a boy was discovered... Oh, this is a fun one. I love this one. In 1725, a boy was discovered in the Hertzold Forest of Hamelin. 
He appeared to be about 12 years of age, and he was wild. Wearing no clothes but covered from head to toe in mud, the boy was spotted scrambling up a tree like a squirrel. <laughs> is that a squirrel? Oh my god, there's a squirrel in here, Daniel. Daniel. Oh my god, Daniel is the squirrel. Holy shit. Oh no, I gotta record the rest of the episode with the squirrel now. So local hunters, and it's always the hunters, were able to wrestle him down and take him into town. The local orphanage workers, along with the town's dock, all deduced that the child had been abandoned for a long time. He could not speak or understand language. He would bark and howl when approached by a person. They had to wrestle him into a bath and into clothes. Word spread fast of the feral boy, and within a year of his discovery, he was brought to King George I. George's daughter, Caroline of Ansbach, presented the feral boy to her father as a gift. Look, darling, it shits in the corner like a dog. <laughs> so now the boy is living in England, and King George named him Peter. At court, Peter was treated like a human pet. They would bring him out when entertaining guests, and Peter would just be Peter. Would you pet a Peter, Autumn? <laughs> I would not pet a Peter. Would you pet a Peter? I'd pet a Peter down by the seashore. Oh my god. The royals would watch this feral boy, all dressed in velvet, crawl around on all fours. Peter would pickpocket the guests and play with what he found in their pockets. Gloves, watches, and trinkets. They would all just allow this, and Peter would just be sitting on the floor, swinging a pocket watch around in the air like a lasso. The king put Peter in the care of a Scottish doctor called John Arbuthnot, who ultimately determined, after years of research, that Peter was simply an imbecile. <laughs> I didn't see that fucking coming, man. <laughs> it's like, he's not feral, he's a stupid. <laughs> The 1700s science was great. Today's scientists and doctors actually know what was wrong with Peter, though. They did not have photography way back then, but the super-rich folk had portraits. And of course, King George had a portrait commissioned of his pet. So we know what he looked like. And what a fucking portrait it is. The kid looks like a lot of fun to have around, man. Did you actually look at it? Of course. Wow. I mean, that kid looks fucking crazy, man. Yeah, holy shit, you know, he's all about the fucking blowing hookers, man. Now, that, that kid, holy shit. And all of his physical characteristics point to something called Pitt-Hopkins syndrome. Pitt-Hopkins syndrome, or PTHS, is a rare genetic neurological disorder. Affected children have distinctive facial features and experience intellectual disability, delays in reaching developmental milestones, impaired ability to speak, and can have recurrent seizures and breathing pattern abnormalities. So yeah, poor Peter had shitty parents who didn't know what to do with a disabled child, so they dumped him back in the woods. Joke's on them though, Peter ended up living in a castle rich as fuck. He didn't stay there all his life though. After a few years at court, people grew bored with him and sent him to live on a farm. The farmers were heavily compensated for his care, and he spent the rest of his life surrounded by kind farmers, but was forced to wear a collar that read, Peter the Wild Man of Hanover. Whoever will bring him to Mr. Fenn at Berhamstead shall be paid for their trouble. Peter died in 1785, at the ripe old age of 71, 
and was buried in the cemetery of St. Mary's at North Church. His tombstone reads, Peter the Wild Boy. I kind of want to know more about his adult life, don't you? I mean, he just mucked around on a farm, man. I mean, what do you do? Milk some cows? Fuck some sheep? Whoa! Whoa, dude. In 1982, he was visited by the Scottish philosopher and judge James Burnett, who said Peter had a healthy complexion with a full white beard and apparently understood what was said to him, but was himself only capable of saying the words Peter and King George and humming a few songs. So let's look at another feral child now. Many of the feral children on this list had traumatizing youths, and Marina Chapman is no exception. According to Chapman, she was kidnapped at the age of four only to be abandoned in the jungles of Colombia in the 1950s. She remembers being left for dead only to encounter a group of monkeys that cautiously allowed her to join their family. Aww. Monkeys or apes, though? Monkeys. Are you sure? Yes. Did they have tails? Yes. Uh, you're, you're 100% sure they were monkeys. They were little curious Georges. As chronicled in her autobiography, The Girl With No Name, she began to follow the roaming family of primates around. Wordlessly leading her to fruits and nuts, they ultimately accepted her as one of them. However, she soon learned some of the tougher laws of the jungle. They don't give you anything, said Chapman. You just have to wait until something drops, and then you have to move quickly, because if you don't, another monkey will take it away. Stupid monkey. It's worth noting that her story has been difficult to prove or disprove, with some naysayers claiming that she's making the whole thing up. But as Chackman tells it, she lived with the monkeys for about five years. At the age of nine, she finally garnered the courage and curiosity to approach people in the jungle, only to be captured and forced into sexual slavery in a nearby town. Stupid human. While she was eventually able to escape, she soon found herself on the streets with a limited vocabulary. I learned quickly with children to speak when I came to the city, but with adults I found them more difficult to understand, said Chapman. With monkeys you know where you stand with them, but with humans it's complicated. So what you're saying is, none of the monkeys fucked her? Right, they didn't try to molest her, correct. That's nice. Yeah. Sometimes living with animals is preferable to humans. Chapman had no problem stealthily finding food and evading onlookers, but she was tired of merely surviving, so she accepted a job as a household servant in an attempt to properly support herself. However, when she overheard her employer discussing a murder, she realized that she was working for ruthless gangsters, so she fucked off back to the streets. What a fucking life, man. While her book led several critics to try to debunk her story, they have yet to do so. Even her publisher ordered Chapman to be evaluated for false memory syndrome, which she didn't display. Amazingly, she's a happy grandmother living in the United Kingdom today. Though she mostly lives a relatively normal life now, she did teach her children how to climb trees early on <laughs> and how to make monkey noises at the breakfast table. Adorable. Still, Chapman doesn't believe that her story is that unusual despite the jaw-dropping details. She said, I'm really surprised because, believe me, I spent some time with some children in the streets and they had so many stories to tell that I don't think mine was anything special. I think she's wrong. Yeah. It's fairly unusual on the spectrum of unusual things to happen to a person. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, I think she's just being humble so people believe her story more, you know? Sneaky bitch. And, Sneaky yeah. monkey girl. Yeah, I mean, honestly, though, like, this is this has been translated, right? Because what she really sounded like was... <laughs> and that's it. Feral children are rare. This was incredibly difficult to research. You're welcome. Yes, this became more about true crime than anything. To abandon a defenseless child in the damn woods is pretty horrific. And that's what this became about. This was your idea, Dan. Look, man, you can blame a TikTok video about Mowgli and Dina Sanichar on this. It's not my fault. For fuck's sakes. <laughs> if you just get off TikTok already. Suck my dick. Whoa. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. If you like us, you can come support us on Patreon at Seven Circles Pod. We are an indie podcast, and without your support, we would not be able to do this thing that we love. Everything was written, produced, edited, and mixed by us, Autumn and Dan. Thanks to Caroline Gates for the artwork and No Machine for the music. If you have anything to say to us about this episode, come say hi to us on the social media. We are currently on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Seven Circles Podcast. That's the number seven, not the word, plus circles like the shapes. Seven and circles. Wild thing! I don't really know the words to that song, Autumn. That's some fucking good bottle whistling there, though. That's that's so good. How uh, how's that Bloodhound Gang song going, man? Do you know the lyrics to that? The one I hummed earlier. Um. You and me, Hannah, Let's do it. Yeah, we're not singing about. We just talked about. We're not singing about sex songs after we just talked about children for an hour. Thanks. But what about the merciless fingering? No, God. Wow. So, talking about people who may or may not have made up stories about their past, and 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 the book that this chick wrote. Do you remember Go Ask Alice? There's a book from the 70s and it was oh, about... Oh, that's a satanic panic movement book. Mm, not really, no. No, okay, about... go ahead. Well, it was about this chick and it was like a diary and it was written like... Well, it was her diary. That was the point. Um, and like it was just had all the most stereotypical drug references in it that you can possibly imagine. I mean, the, the, there was no pink elephant, but there fucking may as well have been. And it's where the whole like fucking grandfather crawling up your leg with a knife in his teeth like when you're tripping on acid kind of shit came from and yeah anyway that was a really cool book when oh, i was a kid um and then i learned recently that yeah they discovered it was just bullshit some dude just i think a psychologist wrote it they actually the guy who who like did a, an intro to the book when he bought the book like there was a little like interpretation of everything that happened in this diary by a psychiatrist uh, but actually, he just wrote the whole fucking thing and sold it like it was a real diary, like Anne Frank's diary or some shit, uh, to, to massive success and riches, only to just be a fucking lying scumbag. I had no idea about that. I thought you were talking about something else. That's interesting. I want to yeah. read that now. I'd, I mean, it's a good book, but man, it, it just really like takes away from it when you know that it's just not true it's not a real diary yeah, it's some it sucks, old dude fucking I mean, wrote it that's weird man it's pretty intense at, t- at times but 
That's yeah. just a weird flex, though. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm going to write a book, and, but from the point of view of a little girl. Like, what? Yeah, but like when you actually read it again now, as an adult, and as an adult who has perhaps indulged in certain things, it's like, it's it's just so stereotypical. It's so obvious that it was written by somebody to kind of sensationalize things and, and almost use it as a tool to make sure that people didn't do drugs recreationally. So is it obvious that it was written by someone who's actually never done drugs recreationally? Uh, I mean, maybe, probably. But, I mean, yeah, you know, like the fucking scene in Fear and Loathing where, like, they're talking about roaches, you know? Where, like, they're sitting in the audience and there's some talk about drugs and some dudes on stage, like, talking about, oh, yeah, the the stoner refers to the, their joint butt as a roach. And, oh, like, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. Anyway, that, that last section there reminded me of that. And uh, apparently we don't have any silly songs to sing today. Yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> it, it's only because, like, I looked at the lyrics for Wild Thing and it's Wild Thing, you made my, or you make my heart sing. And it's like, yeah. Should a child make your heart sing? That's that's a little bit weird. I don't think the song referenced a child. It, so it didn't. But it certainly didn't. It, and then and then yeah. Bloodhound Gang. I mean, yeah, that song's even worse. So um, yeah, we will not sing. Oh, how about songs. Welcome to the Jungle? Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think they felt very welcome though? Yeah. I mean, they they were cool. They were fine there until like the humans came and were like, "Oh, you can't live here." So, wait, they were fine there, having been abandoned. Yeah, they were doing all right. Like, that one kid kept going back. He's like, fuck that. I don't want to go to school. What if they weren't abandoned? What if, like, some fucking Indian dude just walked into the jungle and fucked a wolf? And the wolf just fucking popped out a little human child. I don't think think that can work, man. I don't think that works like that. Is that not how nature works? How genetics work? No, No. you You don't reckon? Maybe we should try it. Ew. What? I mean, not with a wolf. Those are hard to get. Just just a regular dog. Okay, Dr. Moreau. Who? Dr. Moreau. Who? Like the island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, like that Simpsons episode about the island of Dr. Moreau. No, like the film starring that guy that was in Godfather and the other guy who was in... Um, Marlon Brando? Yeah, Marlon Brando and the other guy who was in um, Batman... <laughs> Val Kilmer, yeah, like Keaton. A... Why did I, why did Batman make my mind go to Val Kilmer first? Because I just I was... feel like he was the kind of actor who would be in a movie like that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Fucking Marlon Brando though in uh, in Apocalypse Now. You like? Do you remember the end scene? I don't know if if I it was. I haven't seen that in ages. I don't know if it was at the end of the the regular cut or if it was just the Redux cut, like the director's cut. But like. Where they take a machete to that fucking buffalo. Oh, that, that, that was not playing, man. I, I don't know if at the end of it they said no animals came... Well, no. no animals were harmed in the making of this animals movie, but that were, buffalo was yeah. fucked up. And it took them a few hacks to take that head off, too. It's a fucking buffalo, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big beast. It's a beast. Yeah. Yeah. Marlon Brando. How does Marlon Brando sound in the Godfather movies? Wow, I would be scared of that gangster. <laughs> well. How does he sound, Dan? Enlighten us. Oh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> no, I wasn't asking because I knew. I just thought it would be funny to hear you try and impersonate him. <laughs> um, I mean, I know that like he's like, 
jaw massively pushed forward, cheeks probably stuffed a little with cotton wool like fucking Jack Nicholson in as the Joker in Batman. I, I don't know. Italian and old and calm but angry. Yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> my fragile hands see you later bye bye you dumb bitch 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 bitch